Welcome to Future Hindsight. I'm your host, Mila Atmos. Each week I speak with citizen changemakers who spark civic engagement in our society. Our guest today is Lenora Newman. She's the Canada Research Chair in Food Security and the Environment, as well as Geography Professor at the University of the Fraser Valley. Her most recent book is Lost Feast, Culinary Extinction and the Future of Food. We've heard now from Katherine Richardson about feeding the world, and both she and Bill McKibben told us to be eating lower on the food chain. But what does that mean exactly? What should or should we not be eating? We just have such a hard time imagining that we can cause devastating planet-wide impact on the Earth, but clearly we can. In Canada, we recently lost the Atlantic cod stock, which was critical to Newfoundland's economy. We just really struggle with big, large-scale, long-term management efforts to ensure that our foods survive. And this is a skill we desperately need to learn. We'll be talking about the future of food, from artificial beef and GMOs to sustainable farming and farm subsidies. Let's listen in. Thank you for joining us. It is great to be here. Your book is super beautiful. I like the way that you set it up, that you were going to have a series of extinction dinners, and at the same time, tell us the story about extinction. So how did you come to write this book? This book really came to me. I was sitting in a square in Cleveland, and it happened to be the anniversary of the extinction of the passenger pigeon. And the last passenger pigeon, whose name was Martha, died actually in Cincinnati. So the media in Cleveland was covering the event. And it stuck in my mind. I kept thinking about this last bird. We even have a name for last things. We call them endlings. The passenger pigeon was the most plentiful bird in North America. By far, there were billions of them, and we ate them all. I started putting together a file of other extinct foods to ask the question, what can we learn from the foods that we have mismanaged or eaten to the point where they are no more. It's really a cautionary tale. One of the ones that you started with is silphium, and you say that it was like our vanilla today, and it has disappeared. Offer us a little bit of a way to think about how silphium became extinct and what that really means for us as a society, as a global population, to lose foods. Silphium is a herb, and uh, it grew in northern Africa in one part of what is now Libya. And it was critical to Roman cuisine. The one Roman cookbook we have that survives, Apicius, almost all of the recipes involve silphium in one form or another. Emperors actually stockpiled it in the royal treasury. How could it go extinct? The strange thing is at the time, it caught them by surprise, and it vanished fairly quickly through mismanagement, we think. And uh, the Romans then sent out their legions to try and find a new supply, and they never did because it was gone. You just mentioned mismanagement for the second time already. At the crux of your book is that we are 
constantly mismanaging with the passenger pigeons. As you said, there were billions and we just shot them out of the sky and served them everywhere, almost like the first fast food in America. And it never dawned on us that they would disappear. I feel like there's this idea that things were plentiful and then suddenly they're gone. And why is it that we still keep thinking that or we still keep behaving in this way? We just have such a hard time imagining that we can cause devastating planet-wide impact on the Earth, but clearly we can. And with the passenger pigeon, one of the real tragedies is they realized, although quite late, that the birds were vanishing. And some of our key environmental protections today actually came out of attempts to protect the passenger pigeons as they were disappearing, but it was too little too late. In Canada, we recently lost the Atlantic cod stock, which was critical to Newfoundland's economy. And it's the same kind of mismanagement that we just really struggle with big, large-scale, long-term management efforts to ensure that our food survive. And this is a skill we desperately need to learn. What do you suggest we do? How can we learn the skill? Well, my thought at this point is I do feel there's some critical things people can do individually. We do have a pretty good idea about where the worst impacts are. So in the book, I talk a lot about the oversized impact of the cow, which is much larger than all the other animals we eat. One of the best things we can do individually is to eat vegan or vegetarian But I like to tell people it's not all or nothing. If you wake up one day and you're like, oh, it's turkey dinner day, and you have a big turkey dinner, that doesn't mean the next day you can't eat vegan, you can't eat vegetarian or a little flexitarian. It's incremental, but it makes a huge difference. Plant protein is about 90% more efficient in terms of sparing land for wild creatures, and also in resource use. So that's one of the big ones we can do right off the top. And what I love, you don't need big government action to do that one. You can literally just do it yourself. There's this story, a friend of mine, we were eating sushi, and you mentioned in the book that you no longer eat bluefin because essentially it is like eating a saber-toothed tiger of the sea. But What I wanted to talk about is that my friend said, as we were consuming tuna, that tuna is going extinct. And then she goes, we might as well all enjoy it before it goes away, because why should other people eat it and not us until it's gone? So I thought, oh, that's a really interesting logic. So what do you say to people like that? Well... I think they might want to rethink their moral compass, and I hope they don't believe in principles such as karma and things like that, because I do think we have a moral imperative to set good examples. I talk on radio and TV, and I write books, and I'm in the public eye. If I sneak out and eat a bunch of bluefin tuna, we're doomed. So, I think we do have to take a bit of a moral stand, and we do that every day. And to your friend, I would say, well, we owe something to others around us and to future generations. The problem with food is we say, well, it's just one. And that gets us in a lot of trouble, and suddenly the passenger pigeon is gone. We want to make moral choices, and that does mean we have to sacrifice. 
tell us a little bit more about the food chain and how eating something like tuna really hurts us. Or even in the case of the passenger pigeon, it had a lot of benefits to the whole ecosystem. And we really lose something that is important to us on the planet when a species becomes extinct. If you look at the natural world, plus also all of the biodiversity we've built up as agricultural people, you can think of it like a library. Like it's a beautiful library full of books. And each species is a book. It has its own DNA, its own genetics that are beautiful. And it's like we're burning the books. Preserving biodiversity should be our number one job because we can't get it back once it's lost. Our food system is beautiful, too. It's amazing we can feed so many people so well, so efficiently, and we're developing tools that spare more land so it can be left as wilderness. And we are developing plant-based alternatives to some of our proteins so that we can use less resources. On one side, I feel we still are in a bit of a mode of burning our books, which we need to stop doing because libraries shouldn't be burnt. And on the other side, though, we're very clever. And we do have a lot of people who are very devoted to making the food system environmentally sustainable so that we can all eat. I see it almost as a bit of a seesaw right now. It's kind of back and forth, which side is winning. And I'm an optimist. I like to think this is a problem we can solve so that we can have all the fresh, healthy food we need. What is the difference between feeding a cow that we can then eat and having artificial beef in terms of the cost to the environment? and what we are saving down the line once we embrace artificial meat. So one of the things that's becoming really clear is that we can't feed the entire world the way we feed North America with so much meat in the diet. It's just too environmentally intensive. And we already use 40% of the Earth's total land area, except for the icy parts like the poles, to provide food. And the bulk of that is fodder for animals. And the reason is it takes 10 times more calories and energy and resources to produce an equivalent amount of meat as equivalent amount of plant-based product. So the efficiency is terrible. We have to remember there's nothing sacred about the animals we chose to domesticate. So when we look at the cow, it's a human creation. It was bred out of the auroch, which was a wild animal. But when I look at the future, I take the Impossible Burger, which is very close <laughs> to your run-of-the-mill burger. It's a very good substitute. It's a technology. It can be tweaked. It can be made better. And that's why those technologies are going to win because they will be cheaper, they will be more sustainable, and I think we'll see animal agriculture shrink. People will often bristle at me about this and say, well, what about grass-fed beef? My rejoinder to that is always, well, fine, but 70% of North America's beef consumption is in the form of hamburger. So replace that, and you've done a massive thing for the environment in one step. Yeah, that's huge. 
70% is hamburger. We will soon be eating artificial hamburgers for sure. So there are some, you know, worries about eating GMOs. What do you say to that? What is the future of GMOs? I know it's a little contentious, but I think we're going to quit worrying about GMOs as time goes on because every plant and animal we eat is a GMO of one form or another. Every plant except for wild foods has been engineered over centuries through crossbreeding to make it more palatable to humans or more productive. And one example I love to give is wild bananas are one of the most horrible foods. You can't get the peel off, and they're full of giant black seeds that shatter your teeth if you eat one. We took that banana and we crossbred the heck out of it to create the Cavendish, which is the one you buy in the store today. It's like a perfect little food. That is genetic engineering. The fact we can do it quicker now is merely a matter of degree. There is no question that early in the days of genetic engineering, there were some very public failures that probably needed a little more oversight. And I think it really hurt that area of science. But what people don't realize is how prevalent actual GMOs are. And the example I like to give, number one, almost all insulin is created by GMO. It's created by bacteria and yeasts that have been engineered to produce insulin instead of alcohol. The same technology is used to produce almost all the rennet used in North America. So if you buy a piece of cheese in North America, 90% of the time, it is made with GMO-produced, quote-unquote, vegetable rennet. And if it wasn't for that technology, we wouldn't have cheese in the quantity we do because there isn't enough natural rennet to make enough cheese for everyone. Right. When I read that chapter, I thought to myself, oh, who knew I am eating GMOs all the time? So I wanted to go back to the ocean stuff. You warned that we overlook the health of the ocean at our peril, and the ocean is suffering from warming, from pollution, and from overfishing. And yet you say you're very optimistic that we are still uh, sort of at a time that we can prevent a complete disaster. What do we need to do there? In terms of the ocean, it is probably the thing that worries me most. And I will admit part of that is personal. I grew up on a halibut boat in a family that fished and is a big part of my life. It's trickier to protect ocean species because they're a little bit like passenger pigeons. They travel in big flocks. You can't tell exactly where they are. And they're fairly easy to kill if you focus on it, especially with modern technology. When I look at the problems, uh, ocean warming and ocean acidification worries me greatly. Basically, we need the world to get serious about climate change. I'm sitting up here in Canada where there really isn't much denial anymore because the symptoms of climate change are so severe here. Because we're in the north, we're experiencing it much more uh, rapidly than other parts of the world. And for us, it's a little frightening to see these changes, rivers changing course, lakes draining, tundra melting, and species moving around where they never were before. We need globally to get a handle on that problem. 
And I actually do see food as a really big part of that. I really think we need to step back from wild fishing. We need to look at on-land production of seafood, and we're seeing that all over the world. I'm less optimistic about the ocean than the land ecosystems, just because they're harder, but I really do think we have to come together as a species to address the bigger problems we're causing. So are you saying that we should eat nothing out of the ocean now and eat only things that are actually grown essentially in water facilities on land? I'm doing that given what I know. I think we need to take a little break from our seafood buffet, and otherwise the break could be permanent. Seafood populations are struggling so severely, we need to really look at them, probably species by species, because there are some winners in the oceans. For example, lobster is doing very well, and it's quite tasty, so maybe don't need to phase that one out right away. But we have to take the bigger look at how do we get a control on overfishing internationally, and also how do we stop climate change from changing ocean ecosystems too drastically. So I think everyone should be cutting down their seafood a bit until we address these problems. So what are the most sustainable seafoods that are not grown in the ocean right now? Well, I would say look low on the chain. (laughs) We're seeing some wonderful sustainable shrimp production, oyster production, where even if they're farmed in the ocean, they're done in a very clean and efficient way. Some of the on-land fish farms are still in their infancy, but even some of the oceanic fish farms, they're already accounting for up to half of consumption of a lot of really key species. The main thing is try to move away from the megafauna of the sea, like the bluefin, these huge fish, marlin, because these large, slow-breeding animals are critically endangered, and it doesn't take much to eliminate them, as we learned over history. Right. So, speaking of farming, what do you make of industrial farming, which you see everywhere in North America, whether it's wheat or corn? How does it fit into the extinction story and the future food? We need to stop thinking in absolutes. We should be thinking crop by crop what makes sense. Up here in Canada, we have wheat farms and oat farms that are as big as small countries. And that's probably the most efficient and sustainable way to do it. But Where we start to see problems are where we're intensively farming monocultures, where probably we could use a more mixed biosystem. The one that I always sort of come back to are the almond fields of California, where they require a lot of water and they require us to move all of our pollinators into one spot for a few weeks so the crop gets set. And in a perfect world, those environments would have less almonds and more diversity, so you could have the pollinators locally. We're seeing a lot of really intensive greenhouse growing, which I think is going to continue given the way the weather is changing. And on some of the crops, it's actually the best way to do it. On others, it's probably not. We have to be a bit more nuanced in figuring out the best way to produce crops. And one of the key things government needs to do is to quit subsidizing certain industries that kind of locks in inefficient production. What is the number one crop that you think government should no longer subsidize? I think we really need to look at how we push sugar production globally because we know we shouldn't be eating so much sugar. We know it's terribly environmentally damaging. 
I think I've almost turned that question on its head. It's really time we start subsidizing vegetable production in North America because it's what we need to eat to be healthy. And we tend to subsidize the most unhealthy foods over the more healthy. And so I think we should give broccoli farmers a bit of a break for once because they've waited a long time. I love that. We eat a lot of broccoli in my household. What is the ideal scenario 50 years from now? What do you think would be an ideal way to think about food production and feeding the world? 50 years from now, in a perfect world, we would have returned half of the land we're currently using for producing food to wildlands. I think we can feed the projected population on 20% of the land base. We should be able to do that using technology, using old school technology in terms of diversifying our local food systems, and also in scaling back meat production in the areas where it's very high and making sure the rest of the world doesn't try to eat like us because it's simply not possible. And that 20% of extra forest and jungle and wetlands would really help us with our climate goals and our farms themselves would be much more friendly places for wilderness. That sounds awesome. So how can we get there? Aside from becoming vegan or vegetarian, what is one thing that everybody should try to do right now? Be adventurous in your diet because that's part of the problem. Go out, and if you're at the farmer's market and you see, like, golden beets instead of purple beets, think, boy, I might try cooking those and try and support farmers that are diversifying. I'm also telling everyone who has yard space, anyone with, um, like, you you got two acres of grass, maybe put in some bee-friendly landscaping and don't use chemicals that kill bees because we need those little guys. They pollinate a quarter of our crops. And they're in trouble and they could use all of our help. Also, I think we really need to start thinking about food when we go and we vote. Think about the last election that you voted in, and think about how little attention the most important industry on earth actually gets. If it does get attention, it tends to be around subsidies to very specific parts of the industry, but it's very rare someone says, hey, We need to think about food. We need to make sure we have food security to make sure no one in this country or any country is going hungry. We totally have the technology to achieve this. Sometimes it's just political will. Yeah, well said. So in writing this book, what did you discover that you did not expect? Okay, number one, the Nazi cow. I did not expect the Nazi cow. The auroch was the original animal from which cows are bred, and aurochs went extinct in the late uh, 17th century. During the rise of Nazi Germany, these two Peck brothers became obsessed with resurrecting the auroch out of the modern cow. So they went around the world assembling all of the wildest, meanest cows and trying to crossbreed their way to an auroch. It's a fascinating and very sad story in that one of the brothers objected to the Nazi regime, and he was actually imprisoned for a while. But the other brother went really whole hog 
into uh, the idea of German purity. And uh, Hermann Göring and him partnered up to create a reserve where high-level Nazis could ride shirtless on horseback, probably drunk and intoxicated, shooting at these what we call heck cattle. When I was reading this story, I'm like, how? How is this happening? Then in a fit of what is sort of justice, in the end, uh, the Soviet army takes this area of forest back and they actually cook and eat most of the heck cattle. But the other brothers' cattle, some of them actually survived. And we have this breed of cattle that to be honest, it's not an auroch. It's not even close, but uh, it is a very mean cow. So that was the weirdest thing I found was that the Nazis actually had this return of ancient German animals program that uh, is just bizarre. Bizarre. And it failed. But it points to something that kind of thread through your book, which is that there's this longing for a food that no longer exists and the idea to breed an auroch back to reverse engineer this animal that has gone extinct and now some people are trying to reverse engineer some fruits and vegetables it's kind of beautiful in a way that there is that dream to return to a place where we have more biodiversity and some of this megafauna comes back we tend to really care about things once they're extinct. There are a number of projects to try and use genetic engineering to bring back extinct species. And I should make it clear, no one has actually succeeded yet. But I think the take-home message should be it is way easier to protect things from going extinct to bring them back once they're gone. It may not even be possible. We don't really know. But that said, I do keep an eye on that science, uh, a field called uh, necrofauna. So much better not to lose things than to then try and figure out how to bring them back. Totally. I could not agree more with you there. So you are obviously very passionate. What drives your passion? Oh, I like to think I was born into food. It, it was It was determined early in my life. Growing up on a fish boat, it sort of dominated my life. And uh, my sister and I were pressed into service very early to uh, sell fish at the dock. When I was uh, in college, I uh, worked at bars and restaurants and saw that side of the industry. And it's just always fascinated me. What drives me is this passion for this amazing system, because it is amazing at the end of the day that billions of us somehow manage to eat. And boy, a lot of people are involved in that. Yeah. So here's my last question. Looking into the future, what makes you hopeful? You know, a lot makes me hopeful. When I meet the people involved in the food system, the scientists, the farmers, the chefs, there's such passion. And that passion matters. And I do feel we honestly have to look at the situation and say, yeah, we're in quite a bit of trouble. But we have a lot of technology, we have a lot of smart people, and I think we can do it. And especially when I talk to younger people, too, they are 
so passionate and so involved and informed. And I think we can follow a path of technology and old knowledge and put them together to achieve what we want to do. And like I said, I'm an optimist, so I'm not going down without a fight. <laughs> Excellent. Thank you so much. This was terrific. And thank you for writing the beautiful book. <laughs> no problem. I'm so glad you liked it. I learned so much from this interview about the future of food. What I found most vexing is that we don't fully understand how to manage a species that we eat in the long term, short of not eating it for a while. And if that's the case, then I think we will not succeed in protecting megafauna of the sea like bluefin tuna. However, I will report that I was recently at a Japanese restaurant and the sushi chef literally laughed at me when I said I would not eat bluefin. He said, all of the tuna you eat in restaurants is farmed in the ocean. Wild bluefin is extravagantly expensive and he couldn't possibly afford to buy it and then serve in his establishment. So that leads me to my next thought, which is that in the near future, we will all be eating artificial beef or beef substitutes in our burgers, because once the price comes down, there is no way that we'll continue to buy the real thing. Did you notice, by the way, the ad in the Super Bowl for fake meat? Well, I bet that real beef burgers will continue to exist, but there'll be a special delicacy that will savor only for special occasions. While it's true that we have a moral imperative to set examples, to preserve our environment and the living things in it, it'll be much easier to prevent species extinction when we think it's a simple economic consideration for our pocketbooks. Next week, our guest is Jasara Lee. She's a clothing designer who evolved over the last 18 years from selling her signature label in fancy department stores to now focusing on hand-tailored, locally produced, custom-made clothes. We'll be talking about the negative impact of fast fashion on our environment, falling in love once more with the clothes that are already in our closets, and our ability to change behavior for a sustainable planet. The environment takes a huge toll. It takes uh, 713 gallons of water to produce enough cotton for one white t-shirt. And then on top of that, you have pesticides and fertilizers to maximize the production of the crop, animal abuse in the case of goats raised for cheap cashmere, the leather tanneries with chemical dyes that contain mercury, heavy metals like lead. Then there is also a huge amount of oil that goes into the industry for all the plastic hangers, plastic bags, shipping across the ocean, until next time, stay engaged. I'm Mila Atmos. Thank you for listening to Future Hindsight. The executive producer and host of this program is Mila Atmos. The audio producer and music composer is Peter Fedak. The associate producer is Miriam Zumbu. Additional production by Brooke Sayan. Listen to us online at futurehindsight.com or your favorite streaming service.